felt and uh, welcoming me and, and my family. And I'd, I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And I, I've titled our message this morning, The Perennial Sufficiency of Scripture. And something, when we speak of something being perennial, it's something that's enduring, something that lasts a long time. And that's fitting for this psalm that was written about 3,000 years ago. So it presents to us not this new idea or a novel thought, but a timeless truth. And in this psalm, David celebrates a glorious, gracious God who has revealed himself to us, to man. And as we give attention to this 19th psalm, it will help us to better worship and trust and love this God who reveals himself. So look with me in Psalm 19 as I I read it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's look to the Lord for his help together as we prepare to look into his word. Father, this morning we need the help of your spirit. We need the entrance of your words to bring light to our hearts. So we ask that you would draw near to us, that you would direct our hearts to you, and that you would feed us with your word. Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to be taught. We ask that you would be both present with us and exalted among us. And all this we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, now one, who's, one Christian writer who studied the book of Psalms quite extensively had this to say about Psalm 19. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, whether we would come to that same conclusion or not, I think, I think probably most of us would be on board with that sentiment. Most of us who have known Christ for very long, who have spent much of any time in the Psalms, have been blessed by this psalm. 
We've been blessed by its celebration of God revealing himself to us. And here's the simple message of the psalm. The simple message of the psalm is this, that God speaks, we must listen. God speaks and we must listen. So how is God speaking and how how should we respond to it? Well, there are three dimensions of God speaking that are found here in this 19th psalm. Three dimensions that I want us to to notice here in the passage. First of all, the first dimension of God speaking is the sky. God is speaking in his creation. The sky, God is speaking in his creation. Now, it's no surprise at all that that the Lord's people love this 19th psalm. But what were the circumstances out of, which, out of which it was birthed? The truth is, we don't know exactly the answer to that. But when we think about the fact that God gave it to us through David, then there are some possibilities here. It's, it's possible that David, with his years, you remember he spent years as a shepherd, and David spent hundreds of nights under the stars, hundreds of days under the bright sun, And as he did that, God taught him about himself. God taught him about the creator. Now, later in his life, David spent a lot of time, you'll remember, years on the run from King Saul. And those stars at night continued to testify to him. They testified of the greatness of his God, of God's unrivaled power, even as he was being hunted down by by the person who had the most power in the nation. Or maybe it was later in David's life. Maybe it was during the time he was established as a king. And he bore the heavy burdens of a monarch. And maybe that night sky bore witness to him of the one who was the source of his strength. That would have given him an important contrast to his own feelings of weakness and and sinfulness. Nonetheless, the psalm celebrates the Lord and his communication. In it, we're reminded that God speaks to us through his created world and through his written word. And these opening six verses, verses one through six, they remind us and talk to us about how God speaks through his creation. We're told first that God speaks through his creation all the time. We see this in verses one and two. So look especially at verse two. It says, day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. So all the time this is happening, it says. One has referred to the stars as God's oldest testament. And that's true. They've been testifying of God for thousands of years. You go back to creation, and it was day four of creation week where we have recorded this. He made the stars also. That's Genesis 1.16. And they've been speaking about their creator every day since then. So God speaks through his creation all the time. But we're also told that God speaks through his creation in all places. Look at verses 3 and 4. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So it's through all the earth, it's to the end of the world that this message goes. Through his creation, truth about God is going to every continent and every country, and every city, and every community, and every dwelling, and every village. So God speaks through his creation all the time. He speaks through his creation in all places. And then notice third, he speaks through his creation that he is all-powerful. It testifies to us of his all-power. 
Look, at, look back at verse 1. It says simply, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Think about that simple expression, the glory of God. That is what the heavens declare. The specific name that's used here for God speaks of his power and his greatness and his rule. When we, when we think of God's glory, this also testifies to his excellence and his power and his might and his strength and his importance. And so this is the message of creation. It tells us how important, how powerful this one must be who created all that we see. The second half of verse 1 continues and says that we see in the sky God's handiwork, the work of his hands. Now, now think about that. Think about the order and the vastness of the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars. It seems like all the time we're finding out new things we didn't know about the stars or even about the planets within our solar system. There's a lot more we don't know than what we do know. And when we look at it, we should consider and say, whoever formed and fashioned that must be glorious indeed and must be powerful, all-powerful. Specifically highlighted in what we, in this passage, in verses 1 through 6, you probably noticed, a special role is given to the sun. And that's fitting because the sun, think about what the sun does. The sun fully takes up its task every day. Every day the sun gets up and provides its light and it does so for the entire world. And it does it all through the day. Day after day. Week after week. Month after month. Year after year. Century after century. Millennium after millennium. You and I rightly honor people who have a lengthy, faithful career in something. Some of you probably are like that. One of my coworkers was just last week was honored for 40 years of service, same place. And that is a great testimony. He deserved the honor for that. Once in a while, we might meet people who've done the same thing faithfully for 50 years or perhaps 60 years. But listen, the sun has done its job now for over 60 centuries. Think about the sun again. Think about all the pictures that have been made of a sunrise or a sunset. Think about all the portraits that have been drawn of a sunrise or a sunset. And, and what's amazing is people are still doing that. It hasn't slowed down. We don't just say, well, we've seen that before. No, people are continuing to marvel at that, be amazed at that, wonder at that. And it points to, it ought to point us to its creator. I'm sure like, like most of you, I, I appreciate some things that are, that are well made. Things that last, that reflect well on their maker, that do their job well. And when I say that, there probably are certain brands or specific items or companies that you're drawn to because their products are well made and well designed. Whether it's a chainsaw or a watch or a car, or a fishing pole, or a golf club, or a kitchen utensil, or a shirt. You appreciate that. And in the same way, when we look at creation, we also should be drawn to its creator. That is how God intended it. It is his handiwork. Many of you know the scriptures well, and you've already been thinking about how Paul dealt with this in Romans chapter 1. And he told us that the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world being understood by the things that are made, even his, that's God's, eternal power 
and Godhead. Yes, his creation testifies that he is all-powerful. So the first dimension of God speaking is the sky, that God speaks through his creation. But notice the second dimension, and that is Scripture, that God is speaking in his word and through his word. Now, there are two, a couple terms that we throw around here, and you probably are familiar with them to some degree. We talk about general revelation. That is God revealing himself in general ways through what, is, what he's created. And then we speak of special revelation. And this is truth about God that's known through his words. From the title of it, it's something more specific. So it's general revelation, his creation, special revelation in Scripture. And this brings us to one of the points, one of the major points of this psalm. It's to show us, as one put it, far greater than all general revelation is the glory of God revealed in his word because the word transforms the heart of men. So yes, thank God for how he's revealed himself in his creation. And we ought to take note of that and be mindful of it. But thank God even more for how he's revealed himself in his word in the pages of scripture. We might picture it like this. Um, I'm thankful to have my wife, Anjanette, with us. And before I actually met her, um, I learned a few things about her, kind of some general things. I learned where she was from, where she had studied um, before, what, what year she was in her studies, what she was majoring in. It was general information like that, kind of like general revelation. It was valuable. Um, it was all from people who knew her. But then when I was able to meet her and spend some time with her personally, um, then I was really able to get to know her far better. And that's kind of like special revelation. I mean, both of those are important. Neither one are bad. But one is clearly better than the other. And this 19th Psalm makes abundantly clear that God's special revelation of Scripture is much better than his general revelation in creation. Now, these verses 7 through 11, which is where we see these this idea of God speaking through Scripture, are just masterful, and I may spend too much time on them, but even the time I spend will not be adequate to unpack these verses. They are just verses that we ought to memorize and we ought to meditate on. And what we find here are six prominent realities about God's Word, and then four personal realizations about God's Word. I want us to notice first these six prominent realities about God's Word. These are in verses 7 through 9. And before we look at these a little more closely, I want you to just notice something that's very obvious here. You probably noted it, but it's also very significant. Notice verse 9. Notice a repeated phrase, okay? Look at verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord. Look at verse 7, also the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. So you see that phrase, of the Lord, repeated six times here. So this is why we can speak of Scripture as being sufficient, as being enough for our Christian lives because it comes from God, because of its source. It didn't just come from David or from Paul, but it came from our omniscient God, not from limited man. Now, the basic pattern here then of these, in these verses is each reality that's stated says something about what God's word is and then about what God's word does. 
That's the basic pattern here, what God's word is and what it does. And notice, notice these realities. First of all, it is perfect, transforming the soul. That's the first part of verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. God's word is perfect. It is flawless. It is without error. It is complete. It is whole. It is comprehensive. It is all that we need. We can know when we come to Scripture that there will be nothing misleading found in it. Here's a good way to think of it. We won't be wrongly led when Scripture is rightly read. We'll never be wrongly led when Scripture is rightly read. And we can know that when we come to Scripture, it's perfect. There's nothing missing of what we need. And what does it do? That's what it is. But notice what it does. It transforms the soul. The word converting here has that idea of reviving and restoring and renewing. It can restore our life. Listen, the power of God's word is nothing short of life changing. Do we desire change in some part of our lives? Of course we do. That question goes without answering. We do. Let's remember that the power for that is found in Scripture. It shows us what's wrong in our lives, but it doesn't stop there. It also shows us how to make it right. It shows how to get it right through the power of Jesus Christ. It both reveals our sin, but also shows us forgiveness and the path to transformation and renewal. I know it's quite a claim to make, and lots of people say this about different things, about their vitamin they're selling or about this exercise equipment, but we can truly say without hyperbole, when we say that Scripture is life-changing, it truly is. And we can say personally, most of us can testify that it has changed our lives. Maybe you've heard before the radio program, it's been on for decades, called Unshackled. What the program does is every program gives testimony after testimony of people whose lives have been transformed by God's word who've had their life, their soul converted and transformed through the message of God's word. And isn't that true that each Sunday, as you meet here, as we meet with our church, as we meet together, we're, we're surrounded by people whose lives have been transformed by the word of God. Now, we're not saying any of us are perfect, but God is doing a work. He has done a work, and he is doing a work in us through his word. So God's word is perfect, transforming the soul. But second, it is sure, imparting wisdom. Look at the second part of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So it is, it is sure. This is something faithful, reliable, and trustworthy. And it's something confirmed. It's been tested and found trustworthy. And it says what it, what it does is it makes wise the simple. It gives wisdom. It imparts wisdom. Here's another question that we really don't need to answer because we know the answer. Do you need wisdom? Yes, who doesn't? No doubt we've all felt that in the last seven days, probably in the last 24 hours, maybe the last 24 minutes. Lord, we need wisdom. And here's the good answer. God's word has it because it comes to us from the all-wise and only wise God. The book of Proverbs says that in Proverbs 2. It says, for the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. It says here in the passage that, the, that it makes wise the simple. Now, the simple person that's spoken of here is one who is naive. 
one who is without training. The book of Proverbs, again, speaks about the simple person is that he believes every word. He's vulnerable because of that. His position is dangerous. If you believe everything you hear, that's a dangerous place to be. But listen, because of Scripture, we don't have to stay and remain as the simple one. Wisdom is available to all of us. We can find, in fact, all the wisdom we need in the pages of God's Word. So God's Word is perfect, transforming the soul. It's sure, imparting wisdom. And third, it is right, producing joy. Verse 8 says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Listen, God created us, and so he knows how life ought to be lived. And so what he speaks to us is right. Scripture is that. It is straight and upright. It's like, like a wall that a good builder can look at and be satisfied with. It's like a bookshelf that a good carpenter can look at and be satisfied with what he's done. That's what it is, but notice it produces joy. It says it rejoices the heart. Everybody wants to be happy. That's not a problem. The problem is that so many of us look for it in the wrong places. And God's word points us to the way of true and lasting happiness. Let's remember that the guidance that the Lord's word gives us those, this guidance is not restrictive. It is rather joy-producing. I know some of us would probably admit that joy is sometimes hard for us to find. All of us find ourselves in that place in certain seasons of life. But part of that is because we're not focusing on the right things, on what God has spoken and submitting to that. This simple verse, when it says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, it simply reminds us to go to the reliable source of joy. The path of loving Scripture and obeying Scripture is not a, a joyless path of drudgery. It is the path of joy, of real joy. Oh, there, there are lots of laws that men have passed that have brought grief and trouble but God's guidelines have never done that. They bring joy. What's another reality about God's word? He says, forth, that it is pure, enlightening the eyes. That's verse, the end of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So part of Scripture's sufficiency is seen in that it is pure. It's purity. God never commands anything immoral or indecent. And there are no imperfections in Scripture. It is like pure gold. When you look at gold, the higher the purity of that precious metal, the higher the value. And scripture is as pure as it gets. Some doctrinal statements you might have seen express this. They say that scripture is truth with no admixture of error. That's the right, that's the right way to say it. It's just another way to say that it is pure. He says that, that the that they are pure, enlightening the eyes. It's a great expression. This is what it is. It's pure, and here's what it does. It enlightens the eyes. Now, I, I've worn corrective lenses for many years now. Our, our whole family does. All of our children do. Our youngest son held out for a while, but this year he joined us, and he's wearing glasses now. Many of you, I look around, have corrective lenses. Some of you have contacts. I can't see them, but your, your vision is being corrected. And what a difference it makes when we put on those glasses or when we put in those contacts. 
you probably, maybe it was you, or maybe you had a child or knew someone who, when they were in school, they were struggling, and all of a sudden they got glasses, and it changed everything. They could now read the board, and they could see, they could read their book better. Some have maybe had some corrective surgery on some problem with your eyes. And he would testify after that what a difference it made when those cataracts were removed. And that's the same kind of testimony that's given here about Scripture. It's the same kind of testimony we can give about it. I mean, what a difference it makes. What a difference it makes when we learn this book and we live it out. We can say now and only now do we see things clearly. I thought I was back then, but now I realize, no, I was so mistaken about so many things. But Scripture enlightens my eyes. It allows me to see correctly and clearly. A fifth reality of God's word is that it is clean, enduring forever. Look at verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You, you probably remember there's some tough reading in the Old Testament law when it goes through what's clean and unclean. It has a lot to say there about something that's clean and unclean. Something unclean with something defiled or contaminated. But he says God's word is not like that. It is something fitting that comes from our holy God. It is clean. There's no contamination in it, no pollution in it. Sometimes our family likes to notice in the newspaper these reports, monthly reports that are given on, on restaurant inspections. And sometimes it's helpful to know a place to avoid um, because you want to go to a place that's clean. And it's interesting here in just a couple pages before this in Psalm 12, we're told this about Scripture. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That's pure. <laughs> and it says that it endures forever. You know, most books don't stay in print very long at all. You might have had the frustration sometime of looking for a book only to find out that it was hard to find because it was no longer in print. And in contrast to that, those short-lived books, God's book lasts forever. There's this eternal quality to it, isn't there? That's why people today in 2023 are still being blessed by it. That's why people have been singing about this psalm, Psalm 19, for 3,000 years. The sixth reality he highlights is at the end of verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it is true and righteous altogether. God's word themselves are truth. This is what Jesus said when he prayed to his father in John 17. He prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. People want truth, or at least say they do. But here in God's word is where we find it for sure. We don't have to keep looking for it. We just need to look more closely into scripture. And then it says it is righteous altogether. This is an interesting expression because here... What God is and what God does converge. They come together. Of course, God is the righteous one. And so we expect his word reflects him. His words are righteous. But also, God's word produces righteousness in us. He uses it to make us righteous, to make us more like him. You can think of it this way. Our faithful shepherd uses his word to lead us into paths of righteousness. So the second dimension of God speaking is that he speaks through scripture. He's speaking through his word. 
And we see that in these six realities that he highlights. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and gives these four personal realizations about God's word in verses 10 and 11. And here in these verses, he seems to speak more personally about what he had discovered, what he had found true about God's word. And these these realizations are what every one of us who faithfully hears God's word will discover. We will find first that God's word is valuable. Look at verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. We thought about how much people desire gold, how much people desire money. I mean, think about the billions of dollars, untold billions that are spent on lotteries and gambling and get-rich-quick schemes. There seems to be no end to to the promised strategies to, to get rich. Even, even driving around town, even making the drive over today, we saw multiple billboards that essentially promise a path to quick and easy money. Just call this guy. But here's what we're assured of in Psalm 19. In Scripture, we have something even more desirable than wealth. I wonder if we come to God's word that way. When we read it, when we come together and hear it preached, when we study it together, do we approach it with that recognition that here is something of infinite value? The second realization he mentions about God's word, it is valuable, but he says, second, it is delightful. Look at verse 10. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Now, unfortunately, this is a quality of God's word that that could surprise us. I hope it doesn't, but says that it is, it is sweet. I hope you've enjoyed a good dessert lately. Maybe not too many, but at least something. Maybe a chocolate cake or a cheesecake or, or an ice cream dish or a warm chocolate chip cookie. Uh, those are all sweet things. And David, David reminds us here that we have something in Scripture even more enjoyable than that. It is God's book. In fact, I like, to, I like to underscore that it is fat-free and guilt-free. You may feel bad if you have one, one too many chocolate chip cookies. But you won't feel bad if you read one too many psalms. You just really can't do that. Um, the other night, um, there was an activity for some of the ladies at the church, and sons and I went to help clean up afterwards, and there were some cake balls that someone had made, and... They offered, there were some left, they offered them to us, and um, I had one, and it was really good. I had two, it was really good, but I regretted the second one. Uh, but you won't do that with Scripture. So Scripture is valuable, it is delightful, but notice third, it is protective. He's, look at verse 11, the beginning of it. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. Don't we appreciate a well-timed and well-intended warning? You know, online, we find that all over the place. Now, we can find countless reviews, and I know they can be manipulated, but in general, they can be helpful. It's helpful to hear, hey, don't go there, don't stay there, it's not worth it. I welcome that kind of protection. When we're traveling, maybe on your MAPS program or MAPS application, you get a warning about a road that's closed or about heavy traffic or an accident, and you can save 15 minutes by going this this way now. Those are warnings I appreciate. And this book, the Bible, gives us always reliable warnings. 
about our spiritual lives and about eternity. And if you and I are wise, we will welcome them. If we're foolish, we'll ignore them to our own hurt. He says, Scripture is valuable and delightful and protective. And then fourth, he says, I realize it is rewarding. Look at the end of verse 11. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Think about how much ruin, how much hurt that you've avoided in your life because you have listened to God's voice in Scripture. God's word is rewarding. And don't just think about it in the past. Think about it in the future. Let's, let's think about that, how much danger and trouble we can avoid in the future if we continue to have hearts that seek God in his word and listen to his voice in Scripture. Just recently I read a short little booklet. It was a biography, but a very small one of a man, I'm sure you recognize the name, probably John Wycliffe. Or John Wycliffe, he was a very important figure called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He's most famous because he, he produced the first translation of God's word into English. Um, he, he opposed the corrupt church of his day and did so at pers- great personal cost to himself. And there's a lot that can be said about him, but, but this biography said this, devotion to the Bible was the defining characteristic of John Wycliffe's life. In fact, it repeatedly in the book calls him a Bible man. That's a pretty good, pretty good way to be known. And God really is calling us to be that, to be Bible people, Bible men, Bible women. Notice quickly the third dimension of God speaking and how we must listen. And that is supplication. So first we saw the sky. God speaks through his creation. We see scripture, God speaks through his word. And then third, supplication, we speak to God in prayer. That's the last three verses of this psalm. And this makes sense. In light of the glory of God as seen in his creation, in light of the perfections of his word, what about our ways? What about my ways? What about your ways? How do we respond to the Lord and his revealing himself to us? And the answer to that is that you and I should pray. We should respond in prayer. Simply notice three prayers that ought to be present in our lives in light of what God's revealed about himself in his creation and in scripture. And I point out, first of all, that there is just this acknowledgement here as we go to this final part of the psalm of our weakness and our inadequacy and our sinfulness. And that's how it works. I mean, when we see the Lord for who he is and ourselves for who we are, we recognize we need his help and his mercy and his grace. So how should we pray? We should pray, first of all, we should pray for purity. Look at verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. The one who's seen in creation and heard in his word is the one that we submit to in prayer. The one that we look to in prayer. It's really not a question of asking, should I pray? But how can we do anything but pray in light of who God is and what he's revealed? He prays here in verse 12, you noticed, for cleansing from secret faults. These are those hidden, unintentional sins. These are sins, we might call them sins of ignorance. But they're still sins. And we need God to free us from these. And in his kindness, God uses his word to show us these 
and then to bring cleansing and change from them. So how should we pray? We should pray for purity. We should pray, secondly, for protection. Look at verse 13. He continues and says, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgressions. So these presumptuous sins are not sins of ignorance. These are sins of arrogance. These are premeditated, willful sins. And David says, if I'm protected from these, then I'll be blameless and innocent before God and before others. Now he goes on and says, if I do this, then I'll be innocent from the great transgression. Now we're not sure exactly what he means by this. Some see this great transgression as a reference to adultery because of David's history and his great sin with Bathsheba. Others say, no, it's a reference to idolatry because that's the ultimate sin, the ultimate sin, turning from God, the true, from the true God to something that's not God. And that's something that David's son Solomon, you'll remember, ended up being guilty of. But I'm not sure it's intended to be that specific. He's praying, like we all should, that God would guard us and protect us from serious sin. Now, sin is sin. We, we can all agree on that. But not all sin does the same damage to, to us personally or to our loved ones. Not every sin brings the same dishonor to the Lord's name, the one we represent. Not all sin reaps the same consequences. It may be helpful to think of it like a, an auto accident or a car accident. I, mean, I don't think anyone would say that car accidents are good. Most are followed, even if they're small, they're followed by insurance, paperwork, time on the phone, paying a deductible, sometimes a rate increase, visits to a repair shop, getting estimates, getting approval, time with your car being repaired. Some result in injuries, some result in very serious injuries. We would say that every accident should be avoided, but some have more far-reaching effects than others. And sin is like that, David seems to acknowledge. And so he's praying that we would not be ruled by sin or ruined by sin. How thankful we are, though, that through Christ's death, through his resurrection that we just celebrated, sin no longer has dominion over us. We are free from that, free through Christ to obey our, our Father. So we should pray for purity. We should pray for protection. And third, we should pray to be pleasing. Look at verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, notice, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I recognize this is one of the most well-known prayers in all the book of Psalms, but isn't it a great prayer? Isn't it a great request? He's praying that his words and that his meditations would be pleasing to Jehovah. He says, Lord, may my words, what I say, may my meditations, that is what I think, or my pre-spoken words, May those be pleasing to you. We simply desire that what we speak and what we think would match well with the one who speaks so clearly. Remember the psalm, the flow of it, the first part of it says that the heavens are, are talking, their speech is being uttered day after day. Then in the heart of this psalm, we're told about the perfection of God's words in Scripture. And then the end of it, fittingly, he says, it's a prayer about our words, that they would be pleasing to this one who has already spoken so well in creation and scripture. 
the one whose words are always perfect and right and pure and clean. And it's praying that our words would become more and more like that. And this petition goes beyond just asking about our words. It is a request for both inner and outer integrity. It's not enough just to outwardly conform. That's pretty easy to do. Sooner or later, though, what's on the inside comes out. And that's why we pray like this. We pray for this spiritual wholeness that we would please God inwardly and outwardly. And and isn't this what we all long for as believers in Jesus? Don't we want to be at that place where I'm pleasing him inside and out? We long for that like, like a child longs to please their parents. Like that little one at the kindergarten graduation hoping their parents see and notice what they did. Or that child at a t-ball game, they want to know that, that you liked their catch or their hit or their run that they had. And this is our great goal as believers in Jesus, that we would please God, the one who's redeemed us, the one who sent his son for us. And if you and I can get our focus there, honestly, that will simplify so many things our focus would be on pleasing him, doing what's acceptable in his sight. And this is how Paul prayed for the believers in Colossae. He prayed that they would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. This is what Jesus said he did in his earthly life. He said, I do always those things that please him, referencing his father. And his example becomes our great goal. But notice the hopefulness on which this psalm ends. The last five words, my strength and my redeemer. Let's not miss this. The Lord is our rock and our redeemer. He is our source. He is our supply. In him, you and I find the strength and stability we need, the power, the help, the enabling. It's not in ourselves. It is in him, the one that we pray to, the one whose words we listen to with our hearts. We want to avoid sin. We want to please him. But we're not capable of that. We are weak. We need his strength. And we find it through his word and through prayer. This is a great encouragement for us. It really is an invitation to pray about this, to come draw near to him. And we can go to him and look to him for all that we need to live in a way that pleases him. Let's be encouraged that God speaks and we must listen. He speaks through the sky, he speaks through his creation, scripture, he speaks through his word, and then the right response is supplication. We respond to him in prayer. Let's look to him for help together now. Father, we thank you for this encouragement that you are our strength and our redeemer, and how much we need your help. We thank you that you've